You know, all the data out there points to there being, you know, a mental health crisis in our society coupled with uh, an epidemic of loneliness, and it's especially affecting younger generations. I read an interesting article in The Atlantic a few weeks ago where the author outlines what he thought were the four main forces contributing to the phenomenon, uh, especially among teenagers, and his four are these. Social media use, which isn't too surprising. Uh, a decline in socialization, also not too surprising. Exposure to more and more bad news, which you get also through social media use. And then modern par- parenting strategies. And here's what I found interesting. He argues that the more overwhelming the world feels to parents, the more they bubble wrap their kids in like extreme safetyism. And over time, that kind of protect- protective parenting style deprives children of the emotional resilience they need to deal with like all of the different stressors that we have in this world. Um, and for that reason, then, like over the last few decades, you've seen childhood become more and more insular, where like you hear people like me who grew up uh, in the 80s and say things like, oh, we drove, rode our bikes all over town and, you know, we jumped off our roofs into the pool in the backyard. Like, it, it, you hear those things. But the reason you hear that is because those were things we did that seemed kind of um, different than the way parenting is today, right? And now kids spend less time with friends. They do less stuff like driving and dating and working summer jobs. All of those diminish. I mean, you have toxic social media, like a Hunger, Hunger Games-style deathmatch for popularity, which makes many teens and especially you know, young girls feel terrible about themselves and terrible about their bodies. And then you, um, oh yeah, you add a, a worldwide pandemic with isolation to the extent that we, like unprecedented periods of social isolation that we've never experienced before. And suddenly the rise of teenage depression doesn't feel all that mysterious at all, does it? And of course, that doesn't just apply to parents. I mean, most of us are feeling something like that. But I, what I thought was interesting is that there's a, there's a way of parenting and there's a way of doing life that can deprive people of emotional resilience. And I wonder, honestly, if like church in America isn't kind of baked that way, that the way that we even conceive of the church, it, it deprives us of um, not just emotional resilience, but a, a whole lot. You know, the, the deep loneliness that we're experiencing in our society is not something new. It's been, it's been happening, you know, it's been coming for a while. And I don't know if you realize this, but 2006, that was the year that sociologists said was very pivotal. And you know why? They said 2006 matters because in 2006, the United States, more people started to drink bottled water than they would beer. And you think I'm kidding, but, but beer is a very social beverage, Bottled water is not. Like, beer commercials always have pictures of people, like, having fun, playing games, doing good stuff, and, like, bottled water commercials, individuals are alone near a mountain stream. And, and then, you know, right around the same time, there was a book that was published called Bowling Alone, where the sociologists recognized that it used to be in the 80s, maybe the 90s, like, you go and you would join a bowling league. But bowling leagues almost fell out of use in their early, you know, two decades ago, where people would just bowl by themselves and just increasingly this this um, individualistic way of of doing life now we've been going through the book of acts and we read today in acts chapter 2 a passage that is admittedly idealistic the way acts is structured is you'll have long periods of narrative followed by these summary statements 
that kind of encapsulate and, and make basically for a rhetorical transition into the next set of stories. And these are selectively um, reported events, you might say. And they, what we have today is this like idealized vision of community. And what I don't want us to do, it would be a total mistake, is to take an idealized vision of community and say, oh, well, that needs to be what we are, or that's what the church in America ought to be. Because in my opinion, if you get nothing else out of this, get this. I think the greatest threat to real community is idealized community. Like, and one of the reasons why um, the church seems to suck so badly for us is, is we have, I think, oftentimes unrealistic expectations for what she can and, and ought to be. I'll go into that a little bit more. That's not to get the church off the hook because the church um, is a mess and, and is increasingly messy, but um, I think the solution for, uh, for real community is to be really communal right where you're at. And let's see what we can find here in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. Those who accepted his message were baptized. That is Peter's message on the day of Pentecost. He preached. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Um, let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray to you again, thankful for your word, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us wherever we are at. Help us to hear your voice and to um, know that it is you speaking to us. We really want to hear from you, Father, and so speak. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. There was a group of Benedictine monks. You probably know, like, if you're monastic, if you're a monk, you take vows of celibacy, you take vows of, uh, you know, living together. And I found the way that they, they described their Benedictine vows so um, impressive, but deeply moving. And here's how they described it. They, they said, we vow to remain all our life with our local community. We live together, pray together, work together, relax together. We give up the temptation to move from place to place in search of an ideal situation. Ultimately, this is so profound, ultimately there is no escape from oneself. And the idea that things would be better someplace else is usually an illusion. And when interpersonal conflicts arise, we have great incentive to work things out and restore peace. That means learning the practices of love, acknowledging one's own offensive behavior, and giving up one's preferences, you know, a.k.a forgiving. Isn't that beautiful? Like, isn't it such a... I don't see too many heads nodding. <laughs> I found it remarkably beautiful and inspiring. Um, I mean, to have to remain in the same community, which is so hard, with a bunch of sinners, it's so hard, and yet it bears, I think, some real fruit, you know, character qualities, emotional resilience, spiritual formation that, quite honestly, is probably the opposite of what we associate with you know, church in America today. So what I hope is that those things that were listed in the summary statement of Acts 2, that they trend us towards 
something of what those Benedictines are describing. Um, I don't have time to go through each one of them in any great detail, so I'll just hit the first few in deeper detail and skim over the rest. Number one, what was listed? Well, the early church community devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles were men hand-selected by Jesus to kind of form a new a new Israel, a new community, because there's 12 of them to correspond to the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were gifted, especially gifted by God, to teach about Jesus. Like their message, as we go through the sermons and acts, you'll see their message is about Jesus and Jesus. And so day by day, they'd explain who Jesus was, what he did, how he fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. That was very big in their preaching. Um, and how he instructed his followers to live. They had to instruct the people because back then literacy rates were anywhere between 5% and 15%. So it's not as though you could get together and do a small group Bible study. And even if you could read, it's not as though you would have a copy of the Bible to read because scrolls, parchment was so expensive. And so they're, they're meeting in a public place in the temple courts and they're hearing day after day the apostles teach them for the first time. I can only imagine how exhilarating it must have been to be hearing the message about Jesus, the Messiah, for the very first time. Um, Oh, to be a fly on the wall and to hear it. The benefit of having some authoritative teaching from some sacred text is that it's going to serve as a norm for a community. It's always going to be, it's always going to sort of set the the tone, it's going to set the boundaries for the community to operate and, and give juice to the, to the waters that end up, you know, flooding into the community. And whenever you listen to a sacred text that is 2,000, 3,000 years old, it's probably going to include things that we don't instinctively agree with. And I think that's very helpful for us because, you know, every, every cultural age tends to be captive to a spirit of that age. I mean, every culture has its own blind spots. And so if you don't take things outside of your culture and use that in some way to critique your culture, then you're going to always live um, unaware of your blind spots. It's for this reason that Christian worship has always included some kind of teaching and preaching. Um, That's where, you know, preachers come from, sermons come from. You know, preaching can differ so dramatically depending on whatever you know, church context you're in. We could be in a Roman Catholic Mass today and the sermon would be 10 minutes long and we could go over to uh, the Congo, for instance, and we'd be listening to a three-hour sermon and everybody would be dancing. It would be awesome. <laughs> Sermons differ in length. They differ in, in what is covered. They differ in how they're delivered. I mean, tone is so important in all kinds of communication. And especially, I think this is, the, in some ways, the linchpin, that sermons help you understand how a community under, understand how a community processes the intersection of Christianity with your present cultural moment. Like, how does this faith impinge upon where we are and what we are doing? And so, for better or worse, the teaching in the church is, is going to shape that tremendously. At the risk of being pedantic, I just looked through the first five sermons that I preached going back to August to see where we had been. Uh, the first sermon was titled Barn Sign. It was a warning against materialism and an invitation to care for the poor. Um, caring for the poor is a theme I think you hear a lot of from me. Uh, it was followed by Slave God, how Christianity ultimately ended the evil of race-based chattel slavery. 
hunchback straight, literally the story of the healing of a, a hunchback woman in, the temp, uh, in the, uh, one of the synagogues, which I thought was a real encouragement to those who suffer from chronic pain and disabilities. Um, found God's heartbeat, his relentless heartbeat in pursuit of seemingly insignificant lost things, his, his, uh, his pursuit of the lost, and then the last one was Caduceus, which you know the, um, maybe you know the story from Numbers chapter 21 of the snake on the pole in the Old Testament and how uh, when you look at the modern staff, there's a snake around it uh, in hospitals and on the side of ambulances and just kind of this wild way that Jesus' crucifixion ends up fulfilling something that was written hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So that's one through five. And since then, I preached quite a bit on themes that I think are really important, like resurrection, um, the power of grace, being outward facing to our world, and winsome, um, and what else? Uh, a lot about the greatness of Jesus, because nothing gets me more excited than to look at the greatness of Jesus. The two things that I want you to know before I move on on teaching is, is number one, I hope you hear from me the most important things. You know, the, the most important things are the gospel. The most important things are Christ in the scriptures. The most important things are, are grace and the care for the poor. I hope that doesn't get lost because those are absolutely the most important things. And the second is just that like, there's nothing written in stone about like, what I'm going to preach on. If there are other topics or, or things that you think would be helpful for our community to hear about, that you, things, questions that you have, things you're struggling with, books of the Bible that you've always wanted to go through, things that you think would be helpful. I mean, part of the niceness about being a small church community is, like, we're not a big box store. We're not Walmart. Um, like, there's total give and take, and I, I would love to make teaching as as effective as possible by receiving, you know, your recommendations and feedback. I mean, ultimately, we're going to take it from the sacred texts of the apostles' teaching and the gospels and the Old Testament. So that's number one. That was crucial to the early Christian community. Number two is this word koinonia. We translate it as fellowship, but I thought it was really interesting. You go back to Aristotle's writings, and Aristotle, he used koinonia to refer to, quote, Communities, I should have put this on the screen. Communities where people share projects, goods, and talent with each other. I thought that was a very interesting way of rendering our word fellowship, which is usually just like an adjective for fellowship meal or, or where we're meeting right now, fellowship hall. But no, koinonia is communities that share, I'll repeat it, communities that share, what was it? Now I've lost myself. Uh, where they share projects, goods, in talent with one another. Almost this idea of a community which says, all of me is available to, to, to you, and vice versa, that reciprocity. What a community they were. I mean, they were taken, we saw it a couple weeks ago, from all over the Mediterranean world. I mean, this was a fellowship, a koinonia of difference, D-I-F-F-E-R-E-N-T-S, and that's what made them so special, a koinonia of difference. I mean, they, they were from Iran, Iraq, Libya, Turkey, Egypt, Saudi Arabia. I mean, from all these different cultural and sociolinguistic backgrounds. Um, and that's what made him so great, is that these disparate people could be together. <laughs> that's been our, our dream for our church community, is that we could somehow approximate that. Um, you know, if you throw a dinner party, and you've got 
a, a group, a wide variety of people there. Maybe somebody who's a poet and somebody who's a doctor and somebody who's a truck driver. And maybe two or three of them, they come from different parts of the world. Maybe they speak a different language. I mean, that has the, that has the potential to be an absolutely fascinating conversation around the table, doesn't it? Like, it seems to me that the best conversations and the best ideas happen when you get people from diverse backgrounds and disciplines, and they come together for koinonia, and they unite, they unite around a common purpose. And that purpose for Christianity has always been the gospel. The gospel. They were united by the gospel. The, the royal announcement that... The royal announcement that the world's true king has come and won the greatest victory, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. He's come. He's won. Through his life, death, and resurrection, God has rescued all of humanity from our sins. He's triumphed over the forces of evil, both those that are seen and those that are unseen in the spiritual world. And he's begun the future renewal of all things. And he's at work in that right now in the world through an unexpectedly diverse family, a.k.a. the church which he's placed in the world for the sake of the world. Like, that gospel, that's a gospel I can get around. I don't know about you. Like, that's a gospel with some teeth, and that was the key. Before I move on on koinonia, why is koinonia so hard uh, in American churches today? It is hard. It's probably hard everywhere, but I only know the American context. I could probably preach an entire sermon on that topic, but you know, one of the reasons koinonia is, is rough is because the church is for sinners. It really, it's supposed to be a hospital for the sick, not, a, you know, a country club for the saints. It's supposed to be for, like, in all caps, for sinners. You know, when you have relationships of, in a fellowship of difference, different people who happen to be sinners, that's always going to be messy. And that's why. Forgiveness is, is absolutely crucial. Like, you cannot have any kind of relationship, be it elastic marriage, be it a friendship, be it a church, without, like, a heavy, heavy dose of forgiveness. I, I would not be disappointed if, like, all of us at some point in 2023 were to read Tim Keller's latest book on forgiveness, because I'm sure it is absolutely incredible. Or even if some of our community groups, which are booting up here, if you want to pick uh, forgiveness, Go for it, um, because, because you can't do relationships without it. Uh, the second thing that I think, uh, second reason why I think community is quite difficult, um, if you could be on a fly on a wall listening to pastors moan and, and groan about challenges in their churches, uh, a common refrain you would hear is just that the, the people who themselves complain most loudly about the lack of community in a church tend to be those that like, are least likely to participate in any of the kind of events or the activities that you try to use for, for fellowship in a church. You know, the, the question really is, we say we want community, but, but do we really want community? Like my theory is that when most people say I want community, what they really mean is I want community on my terms, Right? I went, I'm in it if it's the way that I, I want it to be, which is then not a communal spirit, is it? It's an individualistic spirit. It's individualism masking uh, as, as communal. I, communal can only happen when you make it a deep priority. And 
Uh, one of the encouraging examples of this at our last church, there was a group of 20 and 30-somethings who they decided, I think it was maybe twice a month, every month, they would go out Friday night, Thursday night, I can't remember which, but they'd go out for drinks, they'd go out for food. Anybody who ever visited the church who was about that age, they would always invite them out to drinks and to food. And the, most, the, cool, the coolest part about it was no, none of, I didn't have anything to do with it. None of the pastors, we didn't have a single thing to do with it. It was just a, a, people who said, I want to share my life together with others. And I will do the hard work of, you know, making time in my schedule for that. I admired them, and I think that that was probably one of the best parts that we had going in our last church. Apostles' teaching, koinonia, number three, the breaking of bread likely refers to the Lord's Supper. Um, it says they devoted themselves to apostles' teaching to fellowship and the breaking of bread. Um, when they shared a meal together in the book of Acts, it was revolutionary. It had never been done before, to my knowledge. Because there's no other religion of that day that would take people from all of the different social strata and you would put them together around a table. You just didn't do that. You know, black and brown and white and poor and slave and free— all of them are at a table, probably not white, because Northern Europeans, you know, people with, you know, my ancestry didn't even come into the church for another few hundred years. But like to, to just take everybody and say, we'll share a meal together. It was, it was simply, it was simply revolutionary. I love that this is how God decided to start his church. He, he's showing to us that church is a commitment of relationships with other people who are different with us and who we share meals with, who we open our table with. Um, we share life with people who can irritate us. In fact, they probably should irritate us from time to time. We should find ourselves doing things in a church community that we really don't want to do, but we're doing it you know, for the sake of somebody else. And usually, you know, Getting us to open up our schedules and make time for one another is one of the hardest things. And, and yet, they did it around a table. I would say only in America do you find Christians who are like, I want to go, I want to go to church on Sunday, I want to listen to concert quality music, I want to listen to a sermon that is relatively short and sometimes inspiring, and then I want to book it out the door to my car and drive home and not talk to anybody and say, I went to church today. Right? I went to church today. That's not church. It's never been church. It, is, it has never, ever been church. A church is the sharing of meals, uh, sharing of stories, sharing of life um, with difficult people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you may have heard of him. He was famous. Uh, he was a German pastor who worked in the uh, underground church and you know, the underground resistance, and the Nazis ended up, you know, murdering him. He wrote, wrote one of the greatest books ever written, in my opinion, on church fellowship. It's called Life Together. You should read it. It's short. And he talks about this tendency that we have when we come into a, a church community. Sometimes we think at first, like, all these people, they're so nice. There's they're so inviting. They're so welcoming. I know that's not a universal experience, but sometimes we think, wow, these people, they're just great. And then once you get to know them a little bit better, you get to phase two and you discover they're not so great after all. But here's what Bonhoeffer so poignantly writes. 
He says, if people manage to get through the second period, they come to a third phase, that of realism and true commitment. They no longer see other members of the community as perfect saints or complete devils, but as people, each with a mixture of good and bad, of darkness and light. The community is neither heaven nor hell, but planted firmly on earth, and they are ready to walk in it and with it. They accept the community and other members as they are, and they are confident that together they can grow towards something more beautiful. Like, that's a drop-the-mic quote right there, isn't it? These last few are pretty short. Number four, they devoted themselves. It says the prayers, but it literally reads the prayers. You know, Jews had set times of prayer, and they would even go to the temple, and they would pray at like nine in the morning. They'd pray at noon. They'd pray at two o'clock. The early church the early church monks kind of ended up following that, but together they would pray. And unfortunately, my honest submission is I don't have anything for you on this point because I probably have never been in a church that has prayed together very well. I, I've heard stories of churches that had like vitalized communal lives of prayer, mostly international churches, Korean churches. They're incredible that way. I don't know how to do it. I wish I did. Um, Somebody in here is going to have to show us, or, or God's going to have to bring us someone um, who, who makes that, you know, the lifeblood of the church. I sense that it should be the lifeblood of the church. I just don't know how to make that happen. Number five, radical generosity from verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. There were other groups in the first century that were Jewish and that had sort of, they were anti-personal property rights. And I'm thinking specifically of the Qumran community, which they were desert hermits that went, if you've ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were ancient, um, you know, scribal, uh, how do I put it, copies of primarily the book of Isaiah, but some other passages of the Old Testament. The Qumran community are the ones from whom we get the Dead Sea Scrolls. They went out into the desert. They lived like hermits. They had enforced, you, you have to give up your property and share it among the community. The one difference here is that it was voluntary. Like voluntarily, we'll see later on in Acts, you voluntarily sell your property and positions to meet the needs of the members of the community. Just because you wanted to, because that's what love does. Love sees a need and meets it. Number six, signs and miracles from verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. It's not going to surprise you to hear me say that I don't have much for you on this one either, <laughs> because I have yet to work a miracle myself. Uh, I have yet to do a sign. If anybody here has the power of the Spirit to work miracles or can teach the rest of us to do so, um, let's do it. But, but more seriously, let's pray for it. Like, why not pray for it? Why, why not pray that God would move in some miraculous and surprising, surprising way? And then number seven, healing the sick, the poor, the rejected. The reason that I included the passage, the Malachi and Fiona read at the temple gate, it's just a reminder that this was a moment in the life of the church when miracles were happening. Crazy things were happening. It was an unusual outpouring of the Holy Spirit when God 
you know, could take men who were lame and make them walk. And, and when everybody was thinking about life the right way and everybody was experiencing the grace of God the right way, um, it's something to aspire to, but we have to be careful not to idealize it because, again, there's no actual church on earth that is, is like this. I, I believe so strongly that we just got to play with play with the hand that we are dealt. Like, if we are idealistic and and we're looking for something that's perfect doctrinally or perfect in koinonia or perfect in any way, we're just never going to find it on earth. And and then we're going to look ourselves in the mirror and see the person staring back at us is (laughs) far from perfect, too. We can't live up even to our own expectations. My hope is this. My hope for our fledgling church community, is that we would increasingly, you know, move towards our best moments. And in our best moments, we have conversations that are honest and that are real. And we, our conversation toward, turns towards things that are good and beautiful. In our best moments, we practice the judgment of charity. You've heard me talk about it before. I'm so big on the judgment of charity. For those of you who are here for the first time, what is a judgment of charity? Judgment of charity is whenever possible, what I choose, what I promise to do is to try and interpret your words and your actions in the best possible light rather than um, through my own cynicism and my native way of interpreting your actions in oftentimes the worst possible light. Like, if you can have a community that operates with the judgment of charity— I mean, wow, that's a safe place to be. And then likewise, if you're, if you're in a community where you just scrutinize each other and you're always worried about how you're going to be judged, I mean, that's a, place of, that's a place of death. In our best moments, we, we open our homes. We open our lives. We share our possessions liberally. We share our tables. Um, we just act like a healthy, well-adjusted family In our best moments, the church is part of the answer to the loneliness and fragmentation of the world because in our best moments, the church really acts like a a divine family. And I'll conclude with this one example of how it was so beautifully done, um, not recorded in the book of Acts, but recorded by church history. In the ancient world, you you may or may not know this, but you usually didn't have an abortion. What you did is... You, know, you didn't have an ultrasound, so you couldn't tell what the sex of the child was. So, you, you know, you would give birth to the child. If the child turned out to be a girl, it's likely you didn't want it. If the child turned out to be deformed, you definitely didn't want it. And so in the Roman Empire, after the child was born, if it was unwanted, then you would just take it down to the water at low tide and, and set the child there. And then when the water comes in, you know, it takes the, the child away. Here's a classic picture of a Roman family. What do you notice about that? Those are two boys (laughs) because they prize prize the men, right? Or if you didn't take your little girl down to the sea, then what you do is maybe just take them to the edge of the forest and allow them to, you know, die in the woods of cold or by animals. And that way, what you could do is you could say, their blood is not on my hands. My, my hands are clean. You know, the gods of the forest, the gods of the seas um, have taken them. And that's how the problem of unwanted children was dealt with. So do you know what the early church did? They started walking the shores at night. They started walking the edge of the forest glades 
at night. They knew the time people would go down there and leave the children, so they'd pick up the babies. They'd walk along the edge of the forest, and they'd pick up the babies. Like, one of the ways that the church grew is verse 47, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved because there was cool things going on in their community. And the other, the other way they grew was they basically took all of the unwanted in the society and made them part of the family. And I think that is, that's what the church is supposed to be. Um, once the church became more established, anybody know what this is right here? Once the church grew and they were able to build their own buildings and, and meet in extravagant cathedrals, or this one doesn't look all that extravagant. Karen, you know what it is. What is it? Yeah, they started constructing their churches with an orphan hatch because they knew that the family of God receives the unwanted. That's what love does. You know, that's what God's love for us in Christ has done for us. And I think in our best moments, that can go a, whole, a long way towards healing the loneliness and fragmentation of the world that we are in. Amen.